Most of the year, we just work through books of the Bible in our sermons, and I, I think that is the healthiest and the normative pattern for our church. At the same time, I do think it's helpful to regularly survey the life of the congregation and to consider what topics specifically need our attention, and then to apply the Bible's wisdom directly and specifically to those topics. So though we may not be expositionally walking through a book this summer, we are most certainly still preaching the Scriptures. Last summer, for instance, we emphasized our return to in-person worship after all that was COVID-19. We preached a series on what it means to be a healthy church. This summer, as we have continued rebuilding and encouraging people to gather here each week, I thought it was important to understand why we do everything we do on a Sunday morning. Like, what, like what's missing in your life if you're not doing those things? It was a helpful foundational series to which we will often return. But here's a key point. We're not just rebuilding a service. We're rebuilding a community. And I think we can say that community rides on the rails of relationships. Community rides on the rails of relationships. In other words, a community is only as healthy as are the relationships which comprise it. This morning, then, we begin a new series on relationships. Over the next several weeks, I want to consider how our relationship with God orders and informs all other relationships. How does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, inform the way we interact with others in our lives? We will get quite practical. Thinking about gospel-shaped and centered friendships, gospel-shaped and centered marriages. We'll think about communication, conflict, tough topics, and reconciliation. I pray that over the course of the summer, we will commit ourselves anew to healthy, Christ-exalting relationships that rise from a right relationship with God. And it's to that relationship with God we turn this morning. In many ways, this sermon is the sermon that makes all the other sermons preachable and possible. For it's our relationship with God that grounds and orders all other relationships. I want us to see from the scriptures really three things this morning if you're taking notes. First, I want us to see how God finds us. I want us to see what God does for us in our relationship with him. And I want us to reflect a little bit on not just how God finds us, the state that we're in, what God then does for us, but I want us to think about why that matters. I want us to think about why he does these things. So if you would open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, I will read verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, this is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How does God find us? Often if you go out to dinner with a couple you don't know very well, you will ask, so how did you meet? This morning I asked a related question of all of us. How did you meet God? When did your relationship with him begin? In some ways that story is unique for all of us. We just finished up a membership class and I'm slowly getting around to the folks who are in the class to hear their stories and get to know them. I'm reminded anew that everyone's walk with God and everyone's story is in so many ways unique. But there are certain truths that mark all of our lives. The first is simple but significant. We don't so much find God, properly speaking, as God finds us. God makes the first move in your relationship with him. Not only when he physically creates you in your mother's womb, but he moves towards you to make himself known. In all of our lives, in all of our stories, as different, as diverse as they may be, God makes the first move. You know God because he made himself known to you. And though he finds us all in his own time, in his own way, there is a clear pattern. All of our spiritual journeys have some shared characteristics. Here is a big one. He finds all of us dead in trespasses and sins. Look at verses one through four of the passage that we just read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul is teaching that, that you were dead in trespasses and sins. You had no spiritual life in you. Maybe you believed there was a God. Maybe you even went to church. But in any event, you did not honor him, love him, or worship him as you ought. Paul says that you were following the course of the world. You, I, we, were just living the way everyone else lives. But it turns out that living the way everyone else lives is not just a morally neutral reality. That the masses do not define God's will. Follow the crowd then at great peril. Because Paul teaches that the way everyone is just living, the course of the world is actually shaped by someone. I think this is one of the most profound insights from this passage. It's a passage that we preached a lot early in our church's life that uh, when I go and preach other places, I'll often preach from this passage. And one of the things that I think is so significant to see in this passage is that as Paul is describing our spiritual journeys before Christ, he says we're following the course of this world. This world means that there's another world, right? God's world. So in other words, he, we are following the course of this world 
And the course of this world is actually being set by someone. That the masses who think they're just following their hearts, they think they're just doing what is uh, you know, unique to them, living out their identity or, or whatever it may be, that, that, that path is actually being set by someone. The prince of the power of the air. So the world thinks they're doing their own thing, but really the path they're taking is the path of rebellion. It's a path that was charted by the old serpent in the garden himself. Paul says that the spirit of rebellion is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. But we lived in this way because that was our nature. It's what we knew. It's who we were. He says at the end of the passage that we are by nature children of wrath. Brother, sister, friend, this may be a bleak picture, but it is a true picture. It's the bad news of our spiritual state that makes the gospel, the good news of Jesus, truly and in fact, good news. So how did you meet God? Well, God found you. How does God find you? In what state does he find you? He finds us in sin, like everyone else. He finds us with evil in our hearts. Now, we're not only evil or as evil as we could be, is a better way to say that. That old Presbyterian theologian, R.C. Sproul, liked this language of radical corruption, meaning we aren't as sinful as we could be before Christ, but, but the sin in us has, has tainted every part of our lives. Our corruption by sin then is radical and it's thorough. The only cure for sin is righteousness. The only hope for spiritual death is a resurrection. God then finds us in sin, needing a righteousness we do not have. God finds us spiritually dead, needing a life we do not have. I don't know when you met Jesus. I don't know when you began your walk with him. But if you're walking with him, this is the broad strokes of your story. This is how he found you. This is where he found you. You might have been hiding it with good deeds and moralism, or you might have just been living fast, dying young, etc. But nonetheless, he found us dead in our sin. He found us with no righteousness to call our own. He found us children of wrath, following the world, a course that's been set out by the evil one himself. Verse four begins with some of the most hope-filled words in the New Testament. But God... You see the bleakness of the picture, right? It goes, you are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It doesn't get any darker than that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. God saw you in your sin. What does God do for you? First and foremost, God loves you. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, what a line. God saw you in your sin and committed himself not to your destruction, but to your deliverance. God is rich in mercy. He is extravagant in love, and he has acted for us. What has he done for us? What has he done for all of us who are in Christ? He has made us alive together with him. And Paul says, he has raised us up with him so that we may know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. 
His great love for us compels him to move toward us, to do something about our sin, even while we were still in the thick of it. Paul will tell the Romans at the very right time, when you were at your worst, Christ died for the ungodly. What are our two problems? We we have no life that we need, and we have no righteousness that we need. Well, God will give us spiritual life by laying his life down for us. Jesus will die in our place. He will give us righteousness by exchanging our sin for his righteousness. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners like us. What does God do for us? Oh, time would fail us to tell of his kindness toward us. From this text, we can say two things, though, very simply. He gives us life. If you've been around much, you've heard me say something like this. There are no boring testimonies. There are no boring testimonies. Sometimes you grow up in church like I did, and you hear people tell their story, and they've, they, they've done all these things, and you're like, man, God has so saved that person from this insane life, and now they're this. Like, he just saved me from, like, little stuff. And we know that's not theologically correct, but we can think that. Like, have I, have I experienced less of God's power than Uh, the guy that's sharing his story. But I want to make the case that every salvation is a resurrection, and every resurrection is miraculous. Every salvation is a resurrection, and every resurrection is a miraculous. I mean, if if a dead body comes up out of the tomb, it don't matter if it's been there for 10 days or 10 years. It's a dead body coming out of the tomb. Every story of grace is a divine miracle. Every Christian is a witness to the power of God. Because every Christian story shares certain similarities. Like we were dead in our sin with no spiritual life and the God of heaven breathed life into us. We had no righteousness to call our own, but the God of heaven gave us his righteousness. What does God do for us? He gives us life. In many ways, that's why we named our church Resurrection in those very early days. Because we saw that the glory of the gospel is often missed when we think of it as bad people becoming good people. But the glory of the gospel is that dead people come to life in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A second thing we can see from the text that that God does for us is he gives us himself. He gives us himself. The, 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 The verb tenses can be a little confusing when you're working through this passage because Paul is speaking about a future reality in the past tense. Your salvation is so secure, he can speak of you having already been lifted up into the heavenly places with Christ. And there you will experience the riches of God's love and mercy forevermore. The whole point of God doing this is that you may be with God and God may be with you forever. God gives us himself. Let's think about that for just a moment. Like, you don't get married so that you can get something from your spouse. Well, let me take that back. You're not supposed to get married so that you can get something from your spouse. Now, I will admit, I was concerned, Nate, that Holly was only interested in my extremely high-paying job. Just not funny today. But you marry someone so you can be with them, experience them, know them, love them, and be loved by them. The analogy may be limited, but I think it helps us think about exactly the point of our relationship with God. Like, we are joined to God in Christ, not just so we can get X, Y, Z, but so that we get God in all his glory. 
Or perhaps another metaphor, one for the Bible itself. God has adopted us into his family. He has sent the Holy Spirit as a sort of down payment of the future that awaits us. Through the Spirit, we experience right now what we will experience forevermore, the presence of God in our lives. Through the Spirit, we experience right now what we will experience forevermore, the presence of God in our lives. Through the Spirit, we are sons and daughters of God. We know God as our Father. We get a taste today of the feast of eternity. God found all of us in some point and in some way in sin, rebellion, and spiritual death. And God has given us spiritual life by giving us himself. Jesus, God from God, light from light, fully God and fully man, for us and our salvation came from heaven to earth to live, die, and rise again, that sons of man may become sons of God, that children of wrath may become children of mercy. This is our story, and this is our song. Why has God acted in this way, and how does this work itself out in our lives? So God finds us in sin, he finds us dead. He gives us life. He gives us through Jesus a, a righteousness that was not ours, a foreign righteousness. Paul's beautiful epistle to the Romans in chapter one, he condemns all the immorality of the world, how the nations rage, he condemns all the pagan nations, and then he speaks to the religious people in chapter two. Oh, if you think you're so much better than them, then you should know the standard of holiness. And you should then know that you don't meet the standard either. So God condemns the religious and the irreligious alike as having a righteousness that is insufficient, reaching a climax in Romans 3. Therefore, none is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are all in need of a foreign righteousness to be imputed to our account. Jesus has come to give us that righteousness, to die in our place on a Roman cross, taking the penalty of our sin that we deserve and offering us the reward for the righteousness that he has earned. Why and how does this work itself out in our life? Finally, we'll see that Jesus has pursued us in our sin. He has given us himself, given us life so that we may glorify him and walk his way. Let's look at those last couple of verses, verse eight, nine, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace you have been saved through faith. Consider that short, simple sentence, you have been saved. You did not do it. You can be proud of things that you did. Uh, you cannot be proud of things that have been done for you. And we just got out of graduation season a couple of months ago, went to see my cousin graduate high school, and you see how proud uh, families are, and parents are, and guardians are, and friends are, and how proud students are of themselves. Like, it's good and right to celebrate the, the hard work that they, they have put in to accomplish a degree. And you should get all the recompense you can for it. Or imagine another situation. Let's say you're a handyman, a handywoman, and you build a, a 
porch on your house. I built a deck, a nice big deck. And you look at that, you're like, man, this is gorgeous. Like, I really, really knocked it out of the park. I did a great job. Like, it's good and right to look at that work, say it's good, and be proud of it, in, in a sense. You built it. It's, it's right. You deserve the wage of praise for the labor you've put in. But let's take that analogy of a deck and, and move it around a little bit. Uh, if someone were to say, hey, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to build this huge deck and I'm going to make a whole big outdoor living space like pergola, I know what that is, a hot tub, an outdoor kitchen, a shuffleboard, it's going to be awesome. You won't pay for a thing, you won't lift a finger, but it'll be done very soon. So you come back to your house, you've got this giant outdoor living space that you never had before. Like, you can't be proud of that. You didn't do it. What are you? You're thankful. You're thankful that someone has done something for you that you never could have done for yourself. You're overwhelmed with gratitude. You're, you're the recipient of some incredible act of kindness. It is a gift that precludes boasting. Paul is helping us see that this is how God relates to us in salvation. That all of our walk with him, all of our life, all of our righteousness that we've been given, all of this is a gift. In fact, elsewhere in the scriptures we find that, that every good gift in our life, physical gift, spiritual gift, all of it, every gift is a gift from the Father of lights who never changes. God has given us himself, he's given us life. Like this is a gift. We don't earn it then by works, but we receive it by faith. What does it mean to receive it by faith? It means to like, I believe to be true about me what God, my creator, says to be true about me. I believe then that I'm a sinner with no hope of cleaning myself up and getting it together. But I trust that God loves me, that God has acted decisively for my salvation. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I believe he's lived, died, and rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and will return to judge the living and the dead. I believe that this is good news for me and I receive that gift by faith. We have a small, small crowd this morning, but someone here needs to receive that gift. God sees you. He loves you. And in his divine plan, he's orchestrated this morning for you. In his great mercy, he has made a way for you to have life with him now and forever. We receive this gift so that the giver may be glorified. We respond to God in thanksgiving and worship. He moves toward us and we receive him. This is where our walk with him begins. Why have we come to know God? How does that work itself out in our lives? And we have come to know God so that we may join creation in glorifying him. And we have come to know God so that we may get in on his plan for all of the world. Paul here says that he has created us anew in Christ. We think of that conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, that we must be born again of water and spirit. That there's a second birth where we're created anew for good works which God prepared beforehand. I like ending with this juxtaposition rather of two paths. Paul begins this little portion of scripture with this picture of all of humanity walking together on a path following the prince, the power of the air, and all of humanity being by nature children of wrath. 
But while you were on your own path, the path that you didn't know was everyone else's path, the path that everyone else didn't know was actually the path of rebellion. Well, while you were on that path, Jesus was on heavenly MapQuest. I'm old enough to know what MapQuest is. I'm old enough to remember road trip essentials like MapQuest and walkie-talkies. God was charting a different path for your life when you had no idea that was possible. God was preparing a different path for you and God was preparing you to walk that different path. You were on the wide road to hell. Jesus says it. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. But God pulled you off it because he had a better path for you to walk. A path of truth, holiness, righteousness, justice, love, and grace. Worship team, you guys can come on up. So how does this inform our relationships? Because I think this two-path idea helps us understand like the arena in which our relationships play out. This is what I mean. All our lives and all our relationships play out on the narrow road of salvation. All our relationships are pilgrim relationships. We are all going somewhere. The good works God has prepared for us play out in all our relationships. It's imperative then that we seek God's will in those, that we would be faithful in every part of our lives. I pray that over the next several weeks, we would think about and learn what it looks like to be faithful church members, faithful neighbors, faithful friends, faithful brothers, faithful sisters, Faithful, faithful husbands and wives. I've never preached a series on marriage exactly, and there's a few reasons for that. One, we don't do a whole lot of topical stuff, like, like I said, just kind of in the summer, so we haven't had that time. Two, I've only been married for, will be five years in August, and so I'm very hesitant to, to tell people like what I know about marriage. But it's important to remind us that like the, the authority comes from the scriptures. I've been married long enough to have a little bit of an idea, but we'll preach the scriptures and we'll, we'll come to those things together. We'll talk a little bit about parenting even. I've been parenting for even less. Some of you will laugh at that. I read a thing on social media once I thought was really helpful. That it said young parents write books on parenting. Old parents write books on prayer. <laughs> and I, I thought that was uh, a, an interesting and insightful and humbling way to look at things. But we'll think specifically about marriage. Like how are the marriages in our church? How are even the singles in our church? How, are, how do we think about marriage? Or how do we not think about marriage? Like how do we think about all of these things God's way? How can we be faithful sons, daughters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews? And I pray that we would learn in this series to faithfully stand for truth in a world that denies it. I pray we would learn to love our enemies well. Learn to live faithfully in relationships that are hard and increasingly tense. Then I pray that we would relate to our world not with compromise or accommodation, but with loving gospel clarity. In the weeks ahead, there will be some talk of tough topics. And we will tackle those tough topics as Christians with the foundation of the gospel that we laid this morning. Our knowledge of God, a God who moves toward us in our sin and death, who saves us with a righteousness that is not ours, who gives us a life that we do not possess so that we may glorify him in all we say and do, so that we may understand all of our life is a gift that we may respond in worship in every arena 
of life. Brother, sister, our relationship with God is the foundation for all our other relationships. How can you be a good friend? You can be a faithful disciple of Jesus first. How can I be a good husband or a good wife? First, you've got to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. How can I be friends with people who don't like me or ridicule me or try to block me out of their lives because the views I have are supposedly archaic or, or problematic in a modern world? Learning to love them. Learning to be faithful requires a right relationship with God. Our relationship with God orders and informs all other relationships. So my question to you as we close is simply this. Do you know it? Someone here this morning may say, this is the morning that I realize God sees me. God has moved towards me in Christ. And this is the morning I will repent of my sin. Someone watching this maybe online this morning, you will go back and watch this. You'll say, man, God has seen me. God has found me. I received by faith to be true what Jesus has done for me. He's given me his righteousness. He's given me his life. And now I will live all of life in worshipful response. Do you know him? We are instituting a new, um, this time of prayer at the end of the service. So in a moment, I'm going to have our pastoral prayer that follows the sermon. We'll take the supper, we'll sing, you'll be dismissed. Um, but then I'll be up front here for about five minutes uh, if you would like to come and receive prayer for anything. And so that's a practice that we're going to include every week moving forward. And so I know there might not be a lot of folks come up, it's small Sunday, uh, we have not done that before, so it seems different. But we wanted to have an, uh, a venue or an avenue whereby which you can specifically respond without feeling like you're being intrusive, because you wouldn't be, but you might feel that way. Um, so I'm going to be up front every service, and if I'm not here, we'll have another trusted leader. As this grows, we hope to have a team of leaders who will be up here to pray for you and serve you um, as you respond to the sermon. So do you know it? Do you know God? It is folly to begin a series on relationships without that first and primary relationship being considered and centered. I pray this morning you would know the never-ending love of God that runs for you in your sin and in your brokenness. I pray you would turn to him in faith and walk the path that he has laid out for you, the narrow path of righteousness, truth, justice, and beauty. Let's pray. Father, you loved us when we were unlovely. Your scriptures teach that while we were children of wrath, you had great mercy for us. You've brought us into your family while we were rebellious and running from you. And all of this is a gift. It's a gift that we can't earn. It's a gift that we don't deserve. Yet it's a gift that you've lavished on us. The gift of life and even more, the gift of yourself. 
So Father, I pray that someone here this morning would know that gift in a profound way. That when we sit in the membership class meeting in some weeks, months, years ahead, they'll say, man, I, I, I heard the gospel preached and I, I knew of my sin, I knew of God's righteousness, I repented of my sin, I trusted in Christ. And I wanna follow him. Lord, I pray that you will begin relationships with you in this place and through the dissemination of this video. I pray for the believer that has heard this a million times in some form or fashion, that this would never grow old to us. I pray this would make us eternally familiar, just like the sunset in all its beauty catches our hearts every time we see it, that the gospel in all its beauty would captivate our hearts every single time we hear it. And I pray that in the, the weeks ahead that we would be people who commit to your authority in all our relationships, that we commit to your authority in the things that we say and do and think, that we would live faithfully in response to your revelation of yourself for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.